Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So we're in Ezekiel chapter 31. Um, now, uh, last week we did uh, chapters uh, uh, 29 and 30. And uh, there, thirty or excuse me, twenty nine through thirty two is four chapters that deal with uh, uh, prophecies against the nation of Egypt. Uh, there are seven prophecies, seven words of the Lord in these portions in these four chapters. And it's interesting that Egypt happens to be the seventh nation that's uh, uh, mentioned in these prophecies. They're all neighbors, you know, surrounding uh, Judah and. Uh, Egypt, of course, is the last one. Last week, we looked at the first four words of the Lord uh, to Egypt, and this morning, we're going to look at the last three. So we're at number five, the fifth word of the Lord to Egypt. So chapter 31, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? You know, if if God was to to get Pharaoh alone and, and just say that, who are you like in your greatness? Pharaoh, in his pride, would probably say no one. There's no one as great as me. Uh, you know, he's the world ruler that during that time. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar is being risen up. Um, but, you know, he was a very prideful person. He was he governed a, a very large uh, nation with many peoples. Uh, and so, you know, he would probably say there's no one like me. But God is going to tell him he's like Assyria and the king of Assyria in his greatness. Now, Assyria... Uh, their name actually is derived from the city of Ashur, which is on the Tigris River. It was the original capital of Assyria. Uh, later, they moved the capital to Nineveh. That might sound familiar to you if you read the book of Jonah, uh, the story of Nineveh. Um, Ashur was originally a colony of Babylon, um, but it revolted against Babylon, and so it became a military, uh, kind of a almost like a dictatorship. It, it had a king who actually was a commander of the army, and his army considered Consisted of the entire population of Assyria. Every man, every 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 citizen was a soldier in his in his army. And the Assyrians, they were kind of like the terrorists of their day. They were bloodthirsty, they were vicious, and they were greatly feared by all the nations around them. Uh, Assyria became a very large empire also prior to Egypt. Uh, and Nineveh, though, its capital, it was uh, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies in 612 B.C., um, basically about 26 years before this prophecy that we're reading this morning to, to Egypt. Nineveh was so totally destroyed, uh, it was never rebuilt, and pretty soon it ended up just becoming a pile of sand in the wilderness, in the desert, and for many, many centuries... Nobody knew where the location of Nineveh was uh, until about 1845. There were some archaeologists that discovered Nineveh, and then they figured out where it was. Um, so this great nation, this great nation of Assyria that once you know, ruled the world, uh, they were cut down, they were destroyed. And so God is saying, hey, look at Assyria, Pharaoh. See how great he was and how he ruled over the world. Where's his city today? You know, he's, he's gone 
and his city is gone. And so who was Egypt like in its greatness? Like Assyria. And now God gives Ezekiel a parable uh, picturing Assyria as this great tree that was cut down. And uh, as Assyria in her pride was cut down, so Egypt would soon be cut down as well. So verse 3, Indeed, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with fine branches that shaded the forest and of high stature, and its top was among the thick boughs. The water made it grow. Underneath waters, excuse me, underground waters gave it height with their rivers running around the place where it was planted and sent out rivulets to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was exalted above all the trees of the field. Its bows were multiplied. Uh, Its branches became long because of the abundance of water as it set them out. So, So here Assyria is described as this tall tree that stands above all the rest of the other trees in the forest. And uh, both Assyria and Egypt were, in, in turn, in history, uh, the greatest empires of their day. But Assyria uh, here is pictured as a tree watered by rivers around it. Now, the rivers for Assyria would have been the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. Um, and the land around that was just really fertile land. Uh, for Egypt... That would have been the Nile River and all its tributaries. Um, It's interesting, you know, a lot of uh, nations rely on rainfall for their for their crops to grow. Egypt didn't have to rely on rainfall. It just, it just waited every year. The, the tributaries of the Nile River, they swole, swollen, swelled, swelled, <laughs> and the waters flowed over the land, and it irrigated the land. And so they weren't as dependent on rainfall, and so they were just a thriving economy. And this tree here, uh, verse, verse 6, let me go back here, verse 6, all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Under its, it's be boughs, I guess, right? Uh, under its branches, all the beasts of the field brought forth their young, and in its shadow, all great nations made their home. So this tree that's being pictured here was large, and, and the animals of the field would, would come underneath it, you know, probably resting under the shade of this tree. And it says the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. And what it's speaking about, what it's a picturing, is all the peoples and all the nations that were under the control of Egypt or under the control of Assyria and who caught absorbed into it. You know, every time they'd conquer a land, the people would kind of get absorbed into that empire. And so this is what it's picturing. And so all these, tr- these birds coming into, the, into these trees and, and nesting in the branches. Um, you know, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who's the king of Babylon, he had a dream. And in that dream, he's pictured, well, he doesn't know it. He has this dream of this tall tree and all the birds of the air make their nests in it. And God gives Daniel the answer, the, 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 uh, the, uh, uh, the meaning of the dream. And Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that tree. And so, you know, we see this over and over in Scripture. Now, birds... Nesting in a tree. If that sounds familiar to you in the New Testament, it's because Jesus told that parable of the mustard seed. Do you remember that story of the mustard seed? Uh, there's this mustard seed, and, and Jesus is comparing it to the kingdom of heaven. He says the mustard seed, it grows into a tall tree, and the birds of the air make their nests in it. That's a very interesting parable. Uh, the interesting thing about that parable if you think about it, mustard seeds, they grow into bushes. They don't grow into large trees. 
So this tree, this mustard seed, it's got this abnormal growth. And just about two parables earlier, Jesus had told the parable of the sower and the seed. You know, the, the one where the, the sower scatters seed, some's on the rocky soil, some's on the wayside, some's in good ground. Um, and on the seed that's scattered on the wayside, in that parable, Jesus says the birds of the air swoop down and steal the seed that fell by the wayside. And then later on, his disciples say, Lord, you know, give us the, give us the meaning of this parable. And Jesus says, well, the birds of the air is Satan who snatches the word of God before it can take root. So in that parable, the parable of seeds, the birds are not good. They're bad. They're evil. They're wicked. Um, and the parable of the mustard seed is really a picture of the church. And the church, down through the centuries, it's grown so incredibly large uh, since Pentecost. And it has many branches, right? There's all kinds of branches uh, in the church, so many different denominations and groups. And uh, within its many branches, there are birds that have nested in it. And, and I think what the Lord is really showing is that, uh, you know, prophesying how the church would get enormously large. And, you know, today you can go all around the world and ask people if they're Christians and, and you know, people say they're Christian. And you, you, you don't really understand, it. you know, does that mean you're a born-again Christian or you're just Christian in name? You know, you're, you know, there's all kinds of ways that people identify themselves as Christians. And the reason why, I think, is because there's many, many enemies that have snuck into the church and that are nesting in, in different churches, in different denominations. You know, to be a, a Christian, that word literally means little Christ. It was a derogatory term in the beginning when the church was formed. And it really meant you were a follower of Christ. And, and I'm assuming if I were to ask each one of you here today, are you a Christian? And you are, you'd say, yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But, you know, by and large... A lot of people claim to be Christian, and yet you look at their lives and go, I don't, I don't see Christ in your life. I don't see fruit in your life. It doesn't, it doesn't mean a whole lot for a person to necessarily say that they're a Christian. And that's because, you know, you think about it, the church is full of a lot of strange birds. <laughs> you know, there are people that deny the deity of Jesus Christ, and yet they call themselves Christians. And there's people that deny the authority of Scripture. And yet it's the very scripture that tells us about how Jesus died on the cross for us and, and paid the price for our sins. And yet people deny the scriptures. And there's people that take the scriptures and they twist it to fit their lifestyle, their wicked lifestyles. And so there's a lot of strange things in the church today. So anyways, just made me think about that when I was preparing for this. Verse 7, going back to the tree that's being described here. Thus it was beautiful in greatness and in the length of its branches because its roots reached deep uh, to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide it. The fir trees were not like its boughs and the chestnut trees were not like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. So this tree, this cedar tree, it was so tall, no other trees stood taller. I mean, it was like if you were looking out at a forest of trees, you'd see that one was, you know, above all the other ones. It was such, uh, you know, had such large, beautiful branches. Verse 9, I made it beautiful with a multitude of branches so that all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. And that's kind of an interesting way that that's described there. Uh, the Assyrians were a Semite people. 
And what I mean by that is they descended from a guy by the name of Ashur, uh, and he's the one that founded that city. Um, he actually was Shem's son. So Shem was Noah's son, so it goes all the way back there. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, if you've ever looked at the genealogy of, of uh, Adam all the way to Noah, and you read how many years everyone lived, the Bible says that Adam lived 930 years. And if you start doing the math, you start looking at all the genealogies, you come to realize that Adam was still alive when Noah's father was born. Adam was still alive. All those generations. And, and Seth, you know, his son, was alive. All these, all these generations. And, uh, and so, you know, being alive, you know, almost firsthand hearing about creation. I mean, Noah was one generation away. You know, his, his father probably heard it probably from Noah, him, or excuse me, from Adam himself about the creation account what it was like in the Garden of Eden and, and what happened when sin entered the world. And, and if you just imagine that, so it was fresh in the minds of the people even in Noah's day. And um, so after the flood, it apparently that land was so fertile and so beautiful that it reminded those settlers of the Garden of Eden. And so they named that river the Euphrates River after the original river in the book of Genesis. Um, and you might say, well, isn't it the same river? You know, after the flood, the flood would have drastically altered the landscape. And so I think it would have been impossible to say that that was the original Euphrates River. I, I think it probably wasn't, but it might have been. Um, but anyways, it was so fresh in their minds that they named the Euphrates River after, um, you know, the original Euphrates River. And so this imagery of the Garden of Eden, it's, Garden of Eden, it's interesting that it comes into this story because it was, you know, involving that area there where the Assyrians settled. And they probably took pride in their land. And so it just seems like God is kind of speaking about it in, in terms that they would understand. Now we're going to see, you know, the, the beautiful pride. We've seen the, the beauty of this tree, but now we're going to see the fall of the tree in verse 10. Therefore... Thus says the Lord God, because you have increased in height and it's uh, and it set its tops among the thick boughs and its heart was lifted up in its height. Therefore, I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations and he shall surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness. The mighty one of the nations would have been Nebuchadnezzar. And as God delivered Assyria into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, so Egypt would likewise be delivered into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 12. And aliens, the most terrible of the nations, have cut it down and left it. Its branches have fallen on the mountains and in all the valleys. Its boughs like broke, lie broken by all the rivers of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone from under its shadow and left it. On its ruin will remain all the birds of the heavens. And all the beasts of the fields will come to its branches, so that no trees by the waters may ever exalt themselves for their height, nor set their tops among the thick boughs, that no tree which drinks water may ever be high enough to reach up to them. For they have all been delivered to death, to the depths of the earth, among the children of men who go down to the pit. And now in verse 15 here, it starts a lamentation or, or, a, or a mourning over the fall of this great tree. Verse 15, Thus says the Lord God, In the day when it went down to hell, I caused mourning. 
I covered the deep because of it. I restrained its rivers, and the great waters were held back. I caused Lebanon to mourn for it, and all the trees of the field wilted because of it. I made the nations shake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to hell together with those who descend into the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and the best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the depths of the earth. They also went down to hell with it, with those slain by the sword, and those who were its strong arm dwelt in its shadows among the nations." In your Bibles, I don't know if your Bible says hell, mine did, a New King James Version in these verses says hell, and the Hebrew word is Sheol, and uh, the Greek equivalent of that would have been Hades. Um, now, Sheol, and unfortunately our translation, or my translation, well, translates it as hell, but Sheol and Hades are different than the New Testament term of Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the translations dump them all under one word, hell. Um, but Sheol in the Old Testament is used to describe different things. And it depends on where you read it in the passages of Scripture. Sometimes Sheol is used to describe the grave. You know, where your body, you die, you're buried in the grave. Sometimes Sheol is called the grave, where the physical body goes. In other places of scriptures, and I think in this passage in particular, it's the unseen realm of the dead, not where your body goes, but where your soul or the souls of wicked people would go after death. Um, it was also described as a place of punishment in the Old Testament where the wicked await their resurrection uh, to judgment. And uh, so really when you're reading and when you're studying this and you come across those words in the Old Testament, you really got to look at the context to see what is being referred there. Context is king. Um, you know, we get glimpses throughout the Old Testament of what Sheol is like for the souls of the wicked. But most details and the best description is given by Jesus in the New Testament when he told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. So just as the nations that were allied with Assyria mourned at the destruction of that nation and the death of its leader... So God's saying the nations allied with Egypt are going to mourn over the destruction of Egypt and the death of Pharaoh. And many nations tried to ally themselves with Egypt against Babylon. In fact, Judah was a nation that uh, tried, to, they tried to join forces with, Babylon, or with Egypt when they realized that Nebuchadnezzar and his, his armies, the Babylonians, were coming down to take their land. They, they, they tried to ally together, even though God said, don't go to Egypt. Don't put your trust in them. You know, and so as each nation saw, um, you know, the Babylonians basically conquering them, you know, the, the nations that were next down, the, you know, further down south, wherever, as they're, as they're traveling south, we realized, man, we're next. And so they had great fear when they saw, when they would see Egypt fall. Verse 18, To which of the trees in Eden... Will you then be likened in glory and greatness? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the depths of the earth. You shall lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. So Pharaoh, like, uh, likened to the tallest of the cedars of Lebanon, would be cut down. You know, throughout this chapter, God's 
once more, because he's been doing it over and over again, warning that pride can lead to one's fall and destruction. And that theme runs throughout the Bible. Um, So now we get to chapter 32. Chapter 32 begins with a sixth word against Egypt, and it's a lamentation or a dirge or a funeral song over Pharaoh. So verse 1, And it came to pass in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You are like a young lion among the nations, and you are like a monster in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet, and fouling their rivers." So Pharaoh here, he was as a young lion on the land. And, of course, a young lion would have been the fiercest of the land animals, causing fear and terror in everybody, right? So king of the the forest, uh, the, uh, the lions. And so they would cause fear on the land. And then as a monster in the seas. Now, some of your Bibles might say whale. Some of your Bibles might say crocodiles. Um, We don't know exactly what creature is being described there. It could also be some extinct sea creature, like, you know, some kind of a dinosaur or something. We we don't know. Um, But a lot of Bibles translate either whale or crocodile. Whatever it was, whatever this creature was, um, like the li- young lion on the land was the fiercest creature on land and everybody feared it. Well, this creature is in the, ro- in the waters and everybody fears it. And I know crocodiles, of course, people fear crocodiles in the, in the water. Um, so this one strikes fear in the waters. So Pharaoh here is described as the sea monster who troubled the waters and fouled up the rivers. Now, you know, the best way to interpret Scripture is to let the Bible interpret itself. And so if you were to go to Revelation chapter 17, you don't need to turn there. But in there, uh, the great harlot Babylon is described as sitting on many waters. And uh, John is told that the waters are many nations and many peoples. And so I think that, that, that interpretation comes back to this chapter 2, where Pharaoh's like the sea monster that's troubling all the nations around it. Verse Uh, 3. Thus says the Lord God, I will therefore spread my net over you with the company of many people, and they will draw you up in my net. Then I will leave you on the land, and I will cast you out on the open fields, and cause to settle on you all the birds of the heavens. And with you I will fill the beasts of the whole earth. I will lay your flesh on the mountains, and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will also water the land with the flow of your blood, even to the mountains, and the river beds will be full of you. And when I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. So this this day of judgment that's coming on Egypt, that's being prophesied here, it's being symbolized here as a day of darkness. Now, whether it actually was, um, I don't know. But it's very interesting because Revelation chapter 6 and Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament describe the events before the judgment day, uh, you know, when the Christ-rejecting world rejects Christ and then God's judgment is pronounced on the world. Um, Joel, let me read this out of Joel chapter 2, verse 31. It says, The sun shall be turned into darkness 
and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So that the day of judgment is always associated with a darkened sky and, you know, these like the sun uh, darkened and the moon turning to blood and a very fascinating thing. Now, I don't know if you've been following this at all, but uh, there's these lunar eclipses that have been occurring down through, you know, centuries and thousands of years. And uh, in 2014, actually... A little over, a little under a month from now, April fifteenth, there's going to be a total lunar eclipse. And what's interesting about that is that this lunar eclipse uh, occurs April fifteenth, and it coincides with the uh, the Jewish feast of Pentecost, which is the first feast of the of the Jewish calendar. And then there's another total lunar eclipse on October eighth, which happens to also fall, coincide right with perfectly with the last feast of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so you have this, this, this one lunar, total lunar eclipse, and this other two total lunar eclipse, and uh, they're back-to-back, and there's no partial eclipses in between them. And, that, and there's two years where that occurs at the exact, exact same, not the exact same days, but the first year, 2014, in 2015, they occur at the first feast and the last feast. On 2015, it occurs on the first feast and the last feast. It just It's like, wow, what a coincidence. Um, when you have back-to-back lunar eclipses like that with no partial ones and two years of them in a row, it's called a tetrad. And uh, some people refer to it as the blood moons. And uh, what the reason why it kind of got... You start hearing about it now is there was a guy who saw a picture of the of the Temple Mount, and I forgot when the picture was taken in the sixties I think um, and there was a blood moon right over the temple, and he thought oh that 's kind of interesting and he started looking in scriptures, then he went to NASA and he started looking at when these blood moons occurred and uh, he came up with a very, very interesting discovery for the last five hundred or so years. The only time those tetrads coincided with Israel's feasts. Now, there have been other, there've been other years where those lunar eclipses have occurred, but the times when it has actually fallen on the Jewish feasts, every time that that's happened in the last 500 years, something significant has happened related to the Jewish people. Um, in 1493 and 1494, there's two, there's two years where there was the two blood moons, or the tetrad, the four um, called the tetrad. During that time is when the Jews were expelled from Spain. Now, I don't know my history about how significant that was, but that was something that occurred to the Jewish people. The next time, so that was, what, 1493, 1494. The next time a tetrad occurred where, the, where it coincided with the feasts of Israel was 1949 and 1950. What's significant about that? Well, in 1948 was when Israel became a nation. It was the first time in over 2,000 years that the Jewish people had their own homeland. Very significant for Israel. The next time that it occurred was 1967 and 1968. What happened significantly there? Well, the the Six-Day War occurred during that time. And that was the first time 
in over 2,000 years that the Jewish people took possession of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. The first time in 2,000 years. Very significant for Israel, for the Jewish people. And so now, 2014 and 2015, there's another one of these tetrads. And I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord, go stand out on a mountain and wait for something weird. You know, I'm not saying that, but if you take a look at the history, the pattern of history, you know, it's all, there's always been something significant that's occurred to the Jewish, with the Jewish people. And so we're right on the cusp of something that could be very significant, and I'll just leave it at that. But I th- it's interesting. Verse 9, I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Yes, I will make many peoples astonished at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you by the swords of the mighty warriors, all of them, the most terrible of the nations. I will cause your multitudes to fall. They shall plunder the pomp of Egypt and all its multitude shall be destroyed. Also, I will destroy all its animals from beside its great waters. The foot of man shall muddy them no more, nor shall the hooves of animals muddy them. Then I will make their waters clear and make their rivers run like oil, says the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate and the country is destitute of all that once filled it, when I strike all who dwell in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord." This is the lamentation with which they shall lament her. The daughters of the nations shall lament her. They shall lament for her, for Egypt, and for all her multitude, says the Lord God. So in this prophecy, Egypt's going to be, it's going to be uh, captured by the Babylonians. It's going to be plundered by Nebuchadnezzar. And then the land is going to lay desolate. And, and we studied it in a, in a couple chapters earlier. It's going to lay desolate for 40 years. Um, but unlike the Assyrians, there's a difference here, because unlike the Assyrians, God's going to allow the nation of Egypt to come back into their land, and they're going to repopulate the nation of Egypt, and God's going to allow them to, cons- to exist and, and to the end of days, basically. And the only difference is they will never again be a great nation. They'll never again be a world-ruling empire. And... Uh, Assyria, on the other hand, they were totally wiped out. You don't, you don't know anybody that's an Assyrian, well, unless they're lying to you. Like, oh, yeah, i got an Assyrian parents. No, the Assyrians were wiped out as a people. They no longer uh, live. Um, but Egyptians, you know, Sammy Tanago, one of the ministries we support, he's, he's an Egyptian. He's an Egyptian lawyer, and he has a ministry to Muslims. And, and Egypt, you know, they've been in the news a lot lately uh, with their fight against the mother, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. But, uh, but God's word is true. Egypt has never been a mighty nation ever since then because God said that you never will be, and God's word is true. So this prophecy here um, was... Uh, uh, took about it was about excuse me it was about fourteen years before it was actually fulfilled that that Ezekiel's given this prophecy about the destruction of of uh, Egypt because uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in in uh, five eighty six B C and it was like about five seventy one B C when when Egypt was finally 
destroyed. Um, and so here, you know, it hasn't occurred yet. But here in verse 17 now, Ezekiel is prophetically, basically, it's almost like he's doing a funeral service for Egypt, for the nation of Egypt. Verse 17, it came to pass also in the 12th year on the 15th day of the month that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and cast them down to the depths of the earth. Her and her daughters, her and the daughters of the famous nations with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Get down, be placed with the uncircumcised. You know, Egypt was a great nation in its day. In fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the uh, Pyramid of Giza. And of all the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Pyramid of Giza is the only one that has remained relatively intact. It's kind of a just, it's a, it's a monument, basically. However, all the people who designed and built it, they're in Sheol. They're awaiting their resurrection to judgment. And so, you know, they had the beauty of the world. They had that, that, that wonders of the world. They had all the technology. They had all the great, the things of their day. And yet God says, what does it matter now when you're in Sheol? In fact, Jesus said something similar in Matthew 16, 26. He said, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Those things that we get so excited about in this life, does it really matter? Pharaoh would see all the people of the great kingdoms before him, and uh, they're there in Sheol with him. Verse 22, Assyria is there. So the nation that was before her, that she was likened to, compared to. Assyria is there and all her company with their graves all around her, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. Her graves are set in the recesses of the pit and her company is all around her grave. All of them slain, fallen by the sword, who caused terror in the land of the living. That phrase, who caused terror in the land of the living, is repeated like five times in this chapter. And uh, they might have been fearful in the land of the living, but they're powerless in Sheol. They have absolutely no control over their situation now. They're basically there just waiting their resurrection to judgment. Because everybody gets resurrected. You and I, we get resurrected to eternal life. But uh, the, the, uh, the dead, and the, the wicked dead, the unbelieving dead, they'll get resurrected also, but they'll be resurrected to judgment. Verse 24, another nation here. There is Elam and all her multitude, all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, uh, who have gone down uncircumcised to the lowest parts of the earth, who caused their terror in the land of the living. Now they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They have set her bed in the midst of the slain with all her multitude, with her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though their terror was caused in the land of the living, yet they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. It was put in the midst of the slain. So Elam, that was a territory that was kind of in the area of Persia. And uh, in Abraham's time, uh, the nation, the Elamites, it was, a, it was an independent kingdom, and they were very famous for their archers, for their bowmen. But now, 
there in disgrace and dishonor in Sheol, again, waiting their resurrection to judgment. Verse 26, there are Meshach and Tubal with all their multitudes, so another nation is being described here, with all their graves around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though they cause their terror in the land of the living, they do not lie with the mighty who are fallen of the uncircumcised. You know, in ancient burial rites, rulers were usually buried in their own tombs. You know, they had kind of like their own, like first class graves, you know. Um, But in Sheol, there's no rank and there's no privilege. They're just heaped up together with everybody else. Verse 27 continued, Who have gone down to hell with their weapons of war. They have laid their swords under their heads, but their iniquities will be on their bones because of the terror of the mighty and the land of the living. Yes, you shall be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and lie with those slain by the sword. Another ancient burial custom was to bury a warrior uh, with his weapon with him. And it was a way to honor this, uh, this, this, this warrior. And what, what God is saying here is instead of it being an honor for them, it's going to be a testimony to their, to their violence and why they're, why they're in Sheol. It'll be their shame and not their glory. Verse 29, there is Edom, her kings and all her princes, who despite their might are laid beside those slain by the sword. They shall lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. Verse 31, Pharaoh will see them and be comforted over all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword, says the Lord God. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living. He shall be placed in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. You know, death is really an equalizer. I mean, if you think about it, it really levels the field of humanity. You have this mighty King Pharaoh who, you know, you know, probably, you know, he had his palace and everything, all the fine things of life and, and so out of touch with the most common slave in the, in the nation of Egypt. And yet in Sheol, he's going to be there right along with the lowest of the lowest class of the Egyptians. There's no distinction there in Sheol. Remember the Egyptians, they wouldn't eat a meal with, with shepherds. Remember Joseph and his brothers? Uh, they had to eat at separate tables because the Bible says that Egyptians don't eat with shepherds. They consider that, like, you know, gross. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter in Sheol. They're all there together. You know, this passage here is a glimpse of Sheol, but, you know, I wouldn't take it and build a, a doctrine off of it. Um, but I think the most complete picture we have is the story of the rich man and Lazarus in the New Testament. We're not going to read it this morning. Um, some people think it's a parable. I don't think it's a parable because Jesus names the men, names uh, Lazarus, and, and talks about the, the man's uh, rich man's brothers. And uh, I don't think it's a parable. I think it's a, it's a picture of Sheol. And uh, so what is Sheol? Well, I think what we can learn about it and through these passages and through the New Testament is the dead don't go out of existence when they die. Some people believe you just you just die and you, you just no more exist. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The dead do not go out of existence and they actually go to an actual place. Now, in this passage, it kept saying going down to Sheol. Some uh, theologians believe that Sheol is actually in the center of the earth. We don't know. Um, 
but it is an actual place. And if you read that story in the New Testament, you realize that the rich man who, you know, he's in Sheol, he's, he's suffering, he's conscious of his surroundings. He's aware of what's going on. He has senses. He's, he's in torment and he's, and he's thirsty and, he, and he's begging Abraham to, to have Lazarus come across and, and dip his finger into water to touch his tongue. So he, he's got senses. Um, he's got memory. He remembers his five brothers that are, that are still alive. And he says, you know, Abraham, send Lazarus back to testify to them so that they don't come to this place of torment. So he remembers. He has memory. He also has no escape because Abraham says to him, says to him, you know, there's a great divide between us. You can't go out. You can't come out of where you're at and we can't go into there. Now, what's that referring to? There's different beliefs about this. This is what I believe the, the Bible teaches about Hades or Sheol. It's a temporary place and it's a place where the dead go. Um, the Bible says uh, in, in the book of Revelation that Hades will be destroyed at the end of days. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be wiped out. But right now, it's a place where the dead go, and they're awaiting their resurrection. The souls of them go, and they're waiting for their resurrection to judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, and if you read that story with Lazarus, he's on another side. There's, there's like this chasm between them. So there was like two chambers there in Hades where the wicked died. They were in this portion. They were being tormented. The others were what's called the bosom of Abraham. And Lazarus was there being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. Um, but that was a temporary place because uh, Paul talks about it in Ephesians, I believe, where he talks about how Jesus, when he descended down, he took a host of captives with him. And I believe that that's a picture. Jesus went down to, to Hades and the righteous, uh, the Jewish people that, that, you know, they were righteous, but they hadn't, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet to pay the price for their sin. They were then brought out of out of that portion of Hades, and now they're in paradise with Christ. They're with, they're with Jesus now. Um, so there's no escape from Sheol or from Hades, and there's no rest, and there's no hope. That's Sheol. The Bible teaches in the end days there that... that uh, those people, all people will be resurrected. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you and I will be going to the, it's known as the, the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, where we'll be judged for the things that we've done as Christians. What did you do with the talents and the, the time that I gave you in life? You know, you think about it. We, we've been given, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Your time now, your life, actually, the Bible says it's not your own. You were bought with a price. And so we're to be living our lives for Christ. We're to be, be used by him for his kingdom. And one day we're going to stand before Christ and we're going to give an account for him. It's a judgment, but it's not a judgment to, you know, damnation. If you have a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're going to go to heaven. You have that promise. You have the, the seal, the Holy Spirit who's dwelling inside you, who's a, a sign and a seal for you. But we will be given rewards according to what we've done in, in the body. And, uh, but the wicked, they're going to be resurrected also. It's in Revelation chapter 20. But they're going to stand before the great throne, great, great white throne judgment. And at that point, all, they'll be judged for all their works. And yet, they'll be standing on their own merits, which, you know, won't do them any good. 
And so then at that point, they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And the uh, lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never prepared for mankind. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves there by rejecting Jesus Christ. But you and I, we have the hope. We have the promise of eternal life. Paul says in the New Testament, to be absent from the Lord is to be present. Excuse me, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the thief on the cross when he put his faith in Christ, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, so you know, this is kind of a, a, a down message. But for you and I, man, we have the hope of eternal life. The Bible says we don't mourn like the heathen do because they have no hope. But you and I have hope in Jesus Christ. You know, another interesting thing as we're reading in this chapter and as you read through the, through the Old Testament a lot, it talks about the land of the living. And you and I are dwelling in the land of the living. And everything that you and I do today affects eternity. Everything that we do today has, a, has an impact on eternity. Once you die, that's it. That's it. You, there's, no more, there's no more, you know, do-overs. You don't get any, you know, like Mario Brothers, you don't get like seven lives or anything like that. You have one life to live. No reincarnation. One life to live. And so how you and I live in this life today is what matters. And it makes a difference for eternity. So, anyways, I hope you're encouraged and not discouraged. Uh, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, um, it's interesting to read about this stuff. But, you know, um, that doesn't impact you as far as Sheol goes. But if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've never given your heart to him this morning, uh, you know, this is something to really seriously think about. And it's not accidental that you're here this morning. Um, God speaks. His Holy Spirit speaks to us. And uh, maybe this morning, he's, you, know, you need to examine your own life. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is, have you ever you know, repented of your sins and invited him into your heart and put your trust in him for your salvation? Um, if you haven't, I would encourage you to do that this morning. When we're done here, I'll be back here. I'd love to pray with you to receive Christ this morning. Um, and if, if not, if, if you have received Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you that, uh, you know, we can get so caught up in the things of this world and we can get so focused on, on uh, whatever the, what the world gets focused on. And when it comes down to it, none of that's going to matter when we're in standing before Christ. What, what's going to matter is what we did in the body, what we did for him as believers.